Section 2 of The Spirit of Youth and the City Streets This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Spirit of Youth and the City Streets by Jane Addams Read by Mary Schneider Chapter 2 The Wrecked Foundations of Domesticity Quote, Since with keenest edge unused yet unsteeled by scathing fire, lovely feet as yet unbruised on the ways of dark desire. These words, written by a poet to his young son, express the longing which has at times seized all of us to guard youth from the mass of difficulties which may be traced to the obscure manifestation of that fundamental susceptibility of which we are all slow to speak and concerning which we evade public responsibility, although it brings its scores of victims into the police courts every morning. At the very outset we must bear in mind that the senses of youth are singularly acute, and ready to respond to every vivid appeal. We know that nature herself has sharpened the senses for her own purposes, and is deliberately establishing a connection between them and the newly awakened susceptibility of sex for it is only through the outward senses that the selection of an individual mate is made and the instinct utilized for nature's purposes it would seem however that nature was determined that the force and constancy of the instinct must make up for its lack of precision and that she was totally unconcerned that this instinct ruthlessly seized the youth at the moment when he was least prepared to cope with it not only because his powers of self-control and discrimination are unequal to the task but because his senses are helplessly wide open to the world these early manifestations of the sex susceptibility are for the most part vague and formless and are absolutely without definition to the youth himself sometimes months and years elapse before the individual mate is selected and determined upon and during the time when the differentiation is not complete and it often is not there is of necessity a great deal of groping and waste the period of groping is complicated by the fact that the youth's power for appreciating is far ahead of his ability for expression the inner traffic fairly obstructs the outer current and it is nothing short of cruelty to overstimulate his senses as does the modern city this period is difficult everywhere, but it seems at times as if a great city almost deliberately increased its perils. The newly awakened senses are appealed to by all that is gaudy and sensual, by the flippant street music, the highly colored theater posters, the trashy love stories, the feathered hats, the cheap heroics of the revolvers displayed in the pawn-shop windows. This fundamental susceptibility is thus evoked without a corresponding stir of the higher imagination and the result is as dangerous as possible we are told upon good authority that quote, if the imagination is retarded while the senses remain awake we have a state of aesthetic insensibility end quote. in other words the senses become sodden and cannot be lifted from the ground it is this state of aesthetic insensibility into which we allow the youth to fall which is so distressing and so unjustifiable sex impulse then becomes merely a dumb and powerful instinct without in the least awakening the imagination or the heart nor does it overflow into neighboring fields of consciousness 
every city contains hundreds of degenerates who have been overmastered and borne down by it they fill the casual lodging-houses and the infirmaries in many instances it has pushed men of ability and promise to the bottom of the social scale warner in his american charities designates it as one of the steady forces making for failure and poverty and contends that quote, the inherent uncleanness of their minds prevents many men from rising above the rank of day laborers and finally incapacitates them even for that position end quote. he also suggests that the modern man has a stronger imagination than the man of a few hundred years ago and that sensuality destroys him the more rapidly it is difficult to state how much evil and distress might be averted if the imagination were utilized in its higher capacities through the historic paths an english moralist has lately asserted that much of the evil of the time may be traced to outraged imagination it is the strongest quality of the brain and it is starved children from their earliest years are hedged in with facts they are not trained to use their minds on the unseen in failing to diffuse and utilize this fundamental instinct of sex through the imagination we not only inadvertently foster vice and enervation but we throw away one of the most precious implements for ministering to life's highest needs there is no doubt that this ill-adjusted function consumes quite unnecessarily vast stores of vital energy even when we contemplate it in its immature manifestations which are infinitely more wholesome than the dumb swamping process every high school boy and girl knows the difference between the concentration and the diffusion of this impulse although they would be hopelessly bewildered by the use of the terms they will declare one of their companions to be in love if his fancy is occupied by the image of a single person about whom all the newly found values gather and without whom his solitude is an eternal melancholy but if the stimulus does not appear as a definite image and the values evoked are dispensed over the world the young person suddenly seems to have discovered a beauty and significance in many things he responds to poetry he becomes a lover of nature he is filled with religious devotion or with philanthropic zeal experience with young people easily illustrates the possibility and value of diffusion it is neither a short nor an easy undertaking to substitute the love of beauty for mere desire to place the mind above the senses but is not this the sum of the immemorial obligation which rests upon the adults of each generation if they would nurture and restrain the youth and has not the whole history of civilization been but one long effort to substitute psychic impulsion for the driving force of blind appetite society has recognized the imitative play impulse of children and provides them with tiny bricks with which to build a house and dolls upon which they may lavish their tenderness we exalt the love of the mother and the stability of the home but in regard to those difficult years between childhood and maturity we beg the question and unless we repress we do nothing we are so timid and inconsistent that although we declare the home to be the foundation of society we do nothing to direct the force upon which the continuity of the home depends 
and yet no one who has lived for years in a crowded quarter where men women and children constantly jostle each other and press upon every inch of space in shop tenement and street nothing is more impressive than the strength the continuity the varied and powerful manifestations of family affection it goes without saying every tenement house contains women who for years spend their hurried days in preparing food and clothing and pass their sleepless nights in tending and nursing their exigent children with never one thought for their own comfort or pleasure or development save as these may be connected with the future of their families we all know as a matter of course that every shop is crowded with working men who year after year spend all of their wages upon the nurture and education of their children reserving for themselves but the shabbiest clothing and a crowded place at the family table bad weather for you to be out in you remark on a february evening as you meet rheumatic mr s hobbling home through the freezing sleet without an overcoat yes it is bad he assents but i've walked to work all this last year we've sent the oldest boy back to high school you know and he moves on with no thought that he is doing other than fulfilling the ordinary lot of the ordinary man these are the familiar and the constant manifestations of family affection which are so intimate a part of life that we scarcely observe them in addition to these we find peculiar manifestations of family devotion exemplifying that touching affection which rises to unusual sacrifice because it is close to pity and feebleness Quote, my cousin and his family had to go back to italy he got to ellis island with his wife and five children but they wouldn't let in the feeble-minded boy so of course they all went back with him my cousin was fearful disappointed End quote or quote, these are the five children of my brother he and his wife my father and mother were all done for in the bad time at kishinev it's up to me all right to take care of the kids and i'd no more go back on them than i would on my own End quote. or again quote, yes i have seven children of my own my husband died when tim was born the other three children belonged to my sister who died the year after my husband i get on pretty well i scrub in a factory every night six to twelve and go out washing four days a week so far the children have all gone through the eighth grade before they quit school she concludes beaming with pride and joy that wonderful devotion to the child seems at times in the midst of our stupid social and industrial arrangements all that keeps society human the touch of nature which unites it as it was that same devotion which first lifted it out of the swamp of bestiality the devotion to the child is quote, the inevitable conclusion of the two premises of the practical syllogism the devotion of man to woman it is of course this tremendous force which makes possible the family that bond which holds society together and blends the experience of generations into a continuous story the family has been called the fountain of morality the source of law the necessary prelude to the state itself but while it is continuous historically this dual bond must be made anew a myriad times in each generation and the forces upon which its formation depend must be powerful and unerring it would be too great a risk to leave it to a force 
whose manifestations are intermittent and uncertain. The desired result is too grave and fundamental. One Sunday evening, an excited young man came to see me, saying that he must have advice. Someone must tell him at once what to do, as his wife was in the state's prison, serving a sentence for a crime which he himself had committed. He had seen her the day before, and though she had been there only a month, he was convinced that she was developing consumption. She was only seventeen and couldn't stand the hard work and the low-down women whom she had for companions. My remark that a girl of seventeen was too young to be in the state penitentiary brought out the whole wretched story. He had been unsteady for many years, and the despair of his thoroughly respectable family, who had sent him west the year before. In Arkansas he had fallen in love with a girl of sixteen and married her. His mother was far from pleased, but had finally sent him money to bring his bride to Chicago, in the hope that he might settle there. En route, they stopped at a small town for the naive reason that he wanted to have an aching tooth pulled. But the tooth gave him an excellent opportunity to have a drink, and before he reached the office of the country practitioner, he was intoxicated. As they passed through the vestibule, he stole an overcoat hanging there, although the little wife piteously begged him to let it alone. Out of sheer bravado, he carried it across his arm as they walked down the street, and was, of course, immediately arrested with the goods upon him. In sheer terror of being separated from her husband, the wife insisted that she had been an accomplice, and together they were put into the county jail, awaiting the action of the grand jury. At the end of the sixth week, on one of the rare occasions when they were permitted to talk to each other, through the grating which separated the men's visiting quarters from the women's, the young wife told her husband that she made up her mind to swear that she had stolen the overcoat. What could she do if he were sent to prison and she were left free? She was afraid to go to his people, and could not possibly go back to hers. In spite of his protest, that very night she sent for the state's attorney and made a full confession, giving her age as eighteen in the hope of making her testimony more valuable. From that time on they stuck to the lie through the indictment, the trial, and her conviction. Apparently it had seemed to him only a well-arranged plot until he had visited the penitentiary the day before, and had really seen her piteous plight. Remorse had seized him at last, and he was ready to make every restitution. She, however, had no notion of giving up. On the contrary, as she realized more clearly what prison life meant, she was daily more determined to spare him the experience. Her letters, written in the unformed hand of a child, for her husband had himself taught her to read and write, were filled with a riot of self-abnegation, the martyr's joy as he feels the iron enter the flesh. Thus had an illiterate, neglected girl, through sheer devotion to a worthless sort of young fellow, inclined to drink, entered into that noble company of martyrs. When girls go wrong, what happens? How has this tremendous force, valuable and necessary for the foundation of the family, become misdirected? When its manifestations follow the legitimate channels of wedded life, we call them praiseworthy but there are other manifestations quite outside the legal and moral channels which yet compel our admiration. A young woman of my acquaintance was married to a professional criminal named Joe. Three months after the wedding he was arrested and sent up for two years. 
molly had always been accustomed to many lovers but she remained faithful to her absent husband for a year at the end of that time she obtained a divorce which the state law makes easy for the wife of a convict and married a man who was rich and respectable in fact he owned the small manufacturing establishment in which her mother did the scrubbing he moved his bride to another part of town six miles away provided her with a steam-heated flat furniture upholstered in cut velvet and many other luxuries of which molly heretofore had only dreamed one day as she was wheeling a handsome baby carriage up and down the prosperous street her brother who was joe's pal came to tell her that joe was out had come to the old tenement and was mighty sore because she had gone back on him without a moment's hesitation molly turned the baby carriage in the direction of her old home and never stopped wheeling it until she had compassed the entire six miles she and joe rented the old room and went to housekeeping the rich and respectable husband made every effort to persuade her to come back and then another series of efforts to recover his child before he set her free through a court proceeding joe however steadfastly refused to marry her still sore because she had not stood by as he worked only intermittently and was too closely supervised by the police to do much at his old occupation molly was obliged to support the humble menage by scrubbing in a neighboring lodging-house and by washing the odd shirts of the lodgers for five years during which time two children were born when she was constantly subjected to the taunts of her neighbors and when the charitable agencies refused to give help to such an irregular household molly happily went on her course with no shade of regret or sorrow i'm all right as long as joe keeps out of the jug was her slogan for happiness low in tone perhaps but genuine and game her surroundings were as sordid as possible consisting of a constantly changing series of cheap furnished rooms in which the battered baby carriage was the sole witness of better days but molly's heart was full of courage and happiness and she was never desolate until her criminal lover was sent up again this time on a really serious charge these irregular manifestations form a link between that world in which each one struggles to live respectable and that nether world in which are also found cases of devotion and of enduring affection arising out of the midst of the folly and the shame the girl there who through all tribulation supports her recreant lover or the girl who overcomes her drink and opium habits who renounces luxuries and goes back to uninteresting daily toil for the sake of the good opinion of a man who wishes her to appear decent although he never means to marry her these are also impressive one of our earliest experiences at hall house had to do with a lover of this type and the charming young girl who had become fatally attached to him i can see her now running for protection up the broad steps of the columned piazza then surrounding hall house her slender figure was trembling with fright her tear-covered face swollen and blood-stained from the blows he had dealt her he is apt to abuse me when he is drunk was the only explanation and that given by way of apology which could be extracted from her when we discovered that there had been no marriage ceremony that there were no living children that she had twice narrowly escaped losing her life it seemed a simple matter to insist that the relation should be broken off she apathetically remained at hall house for a few weeks 
but when her strength had somewhat returned when her lover began to recover from his prolonged debauch of whiskey and opium she insisted upon going home every day to prepare his meals and to see that the little tenement was clean and comfortable because pierre is always so sick and weak after one of those long ones this of course meant that she was drifting back to him and when she was at last restrained by that moral compulsion by that overwhelming of another's will which is always so ruthlessly exerted by those who are conscious that virtue is struggling with vice her mind gave way and she became utterly distraught a poor little ophelia i met her one night wandering in the hall half dressed in the tawdry pink gown that pierre liked best of all and groping on the blank wall to find the door which might permit her to escape to her lover in a few days it was obvious that hospital restraint was necessary but when she finally recovered we were obliged to admit that there is no civic authority which can control the acts of a girl of eighteen from the hospital she followed her heart directly back to pierre who had in the meantime moved out of the hall house neighborhood we knew later that he had degraded the poor child still further by obliging her to earn money for his drugs by that last method resorted to by a degenerate man to whom a woman's devotion still clings it is inevitable that a force which is enduring enough to withstand the discouragements the suffering and privation of daily living strenuous enough to overcome and rectify the impulses which make for greed and self-indulgence should be able even under untoward conditions to lift up and transfigure those who are really within its grasp and set them in marked contrast to those who are merely playing a game with it or using it for gain but what has happened to those wretched girls why has this beneficent current cast them upon the shores of death and destruction when it should have carried them into the safe port of domesticity through whose fault has this basic emotion served merely to trick and deride them older nations have taken a well-defined line of action in regard to it among the hull house neighbors are many of the latin races who employ a careful chaperonage over their marriageable daughters and provide husbands for them at an early age my father will get a husband for me this winter announces angelina whose father has brought her to a party at hull house and she adds with a toss of her head i saw two already but my father says they haven't saved enough money to marry me she feels quite as content in her father's wisdom and ability to provide her with a husband as she does in his capacity to escort her home safely from the party he does not permit her to cross the threshold after nightfall unaccompanied by himself and unless the dowry and the husband are provided before she is eighteen he will consider himself derelict in his duty towards her francesca can't even come to the sodality meeting this winter she lives only across from the church but her mother won't let her come because her father is out west working on the railroad is a comment one often hears the system works well only when it is carried logically through to the end and an early marriage with a properly provided husband even with the latin races when the system is tried in america it often breaks down and when the anglo-saxons anywhere imitate this regime it is usually utterly futile they follow the first part of the program as far as repression is concerned but they find it impossible to follow the second because all sorts of inherited notions deter them the repressed girl if she is not one of the languishing types 
takes matters into her own hands and finds her pleasures in illicit ways without her parents knowledge i had no idea my daughter was going to public dances she always told me she was spending the night with her cousin on the south side i hadn't a suspicion of the truth many a broken-hearted mother explains an officer who has had a long experience in the juvenile court of chicago and has listened to hundreds of cases involving wayward girls gives it as his deliberate impression that a large majority of cases are from families where the discipline had been rigid where they had taken but half of the convention of the old world and left the other half unless we mean to go back to those old world customs which are already hopelessly broken there would seem to be but one path open to us in america that path implies freedom for the young people made safe only through their own self-control this in turn must be based upon knowledge and habits of clean companionship in point of fact no course between the two is safe in a modern city and in the most crowded quarters the young people themselves are working out a protective code which reminds one of the instinctive protection that the free-ranging child in the country learns in regard to poisonous plants and marshy places or of the cautions and abilities that the mountain child develops in regard to ice and precipices this statement of course does not hold good concerning a large number of children in every crowded city quarter who may be classed as degenerates the children of careless or dissolute mothers who fall into all sorts of degenerate habits and associations before childhood is past who cannot be said to have gone wrong at any one moment because they have never been in the right path even of innocent childhood but the statement is sound concerning thousands of girls who go to and from work every day with crowds of young men who meet them again and again in the occasional evening pleasures of the most decent dance halls or on a sunday afternoon in the parks the mothers who are of most use to those normal city working girls are the mothers who develop a sense of companionship with the changing experiences of their daughters who are willing to modify ill-fitting social conventions into rules of conduct which are of actual service to their children in their daily lives of factory work and of city amusements those mothers through their sympathy and adaptability substitute keen present interests and activity for solemn warnings and restraint self-expression for repression their vigorous family life allies itself by a dozen bonds to the educational the industrial and the recreational organizations of the modern city and makes for intelligent understanding industrial efficiency and sane social pleasures by all means let us preserve the safety of the home but let us also make safe the street in which the majority of our young people find their recreation and form their permanent relationships let us not forget that the great processes of social life develop themselves through influences of which each participant is unconscious as he struggles alone and unaided in the strength of a current which seizes him and bears him along with myriads of others a current which may so easily wreck the very foundations of domesticity it's the end of chapter two